You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to be speaking with Susan Abulhawa. Susan, welcome to Living Writers. Thanks for being part of this virtual space. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, I've, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. Before we go any further, I'll read your short bio in the back of your latest novel, Against the Loveless World, out with Simon and Schuster. Um, and, then, and then we'll get to the conversation. Susan Abulhawa is a Palestinian-American writer and political activist. She is the author of Mornings in Jinan, translated into 30 languages, and The Blue Between Sky and Water. Born to refugees of the Six-Day War of 1967, she moved to the United States as a teenager, graduated with degrees in biomedical science and neuroscience, and established a career in medical science. In July 2001, Abu Hawa founded Playgrounds for Palestine, a non-governmental ch children's organization dedicated to upholding the right to play movement for Palestinian children. She lives in Pennsylvania. Susan, once again, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Where are you speaking to us from today? Um, I am in Bucks County. It's a northern suburb of Philadelphia. How have things been with you during the time of COVID? I, I should say we're speaking on November 13th, 2020. Um, so, you know, the living uh, kind of uh, isolated is, is not a huge departure from my normal. Um, I typically work at home anyway, and it's just me and my dogs here. Um, my daughter, uh, my daughter uh, moved in for a little while. She was furloughed from her job. Um, but I lost her again, so it's just me and my dogs in my cave anyway. So it, it wasn't a huge departure um, for us in terms of, you know, the, the quarantining. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it, it, it still takes a toll somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It, yeah. It, it really, it really does. But it sounds like, it sounds like with your dogs too, that they get you outside, Yes. Yeah. I'm lucky that, that we live in a, um, in an area with a lot of parks and open space. So I do, I'm outside all the time uh, and I have a garden. So I, you know, I garden quite a lot. Uh, so, so I, yeah, I think it would have been really hard if I were living in the city or a more urban setting. And so also thinking about our, our other thing, our other, the other big thing that's been looming election 2020 um being in pennsylvania probably has mm -hmm. had some particular stressors too but near near philadelphia 
probably probably less so I imagine or (laughs) well no I think I mean it was stressful for everybody you know we were all sort of holding our breath um my uh the area where I live was red until you know close to the last last hour when all the mail-ins were counted and then it flipped blue um you know the same thing was true for the whole state but uh there's <laughs> apparently we're still uh it's still up in the air because it, there's some uh indications that this could go to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court oh. from what i'm reading based on some bureaucratic procedural things um regarding the mail in ballots but I- i'm not really clear on the on the full details of that but uh it's definitely been um, unprecedented <laughs> in my lifetime anyway. Completely. I'm, I'm right here with you on that. Um, definitely. It, Susan, to think, think biographically for a moment, um, y- you were born in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Um, and so have you, but then lived a, a most, I guess it's is it's fair to say you've lived most of your life in the United States. Um, most it, of my adult life, yeah. Um, I came to the states when I was thirteen, or all of my adult life, I should say. So since I was thirteen, I've been here. And and so, have you? Did you um, decide to become a citizen? Yeah, when I was eighteen. So that way, so okay, that makes sense because then you you're voting and (laughs) right yeah and I don't have citizenship anywhere else my um you know just being born in Kuwait doesn't entitle you to citizenship because my my family were refugees from the 67 war and they landed in Kuwait so um I was born with you know um no documentation actually I, I had refugee papers from the UN and and that's something that then you share with your your main character of against the loveless world correct yeah um and it's actually uh it's 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 a condition of uh the larger part of palestinian society i mean the vast majority of palestinians now actually live outside of palestine because of um the original uh nakba as we call it, it's our exodus, or, or it translates to the catastrophe when 80% of the Palestinian population um, that had been living there for at least centuries um, was expelled in 1947 and 48 by the newly formed Israel. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, the we are the descendants, or, or most Palestinians are the descendants of those refugees. Um, and then there were refugees from 1967 when Israel conquered the rest of Palestine, and those, those uh, a large portion of that indigenous population was uh, forced into exile, and my family was among that group of refugees. And and it seems like from uh, the the biography uh, material that was included with Against the Loveless World, uh, not not in the book itself, um, Susan, but in in the promotional material that, mm-hmm. that you were in North Carolina as a very little girl, yes. like until you were five years old. Yes, that's correct. So I, 
that's why I don't have an accent because I, I was here. English was the first language I learned to speak, um, but Arabic was the language that I f was first literate in. So I, I went, uh, I was born in Kuwait and I came here as a, as a baby, a, a few months old with, um, with my uh, parents who were here very briefly, my father. And, um, and I went back when I was, uh, I went back, uh, my mother was in Kuwait, so I, I actually met her when I was five years old, and I went back with her to Kuwait, where I stayed um, f until I was about nine, uh, and then I lived in Jerusalem from the age of ten to until I was thirteen, and then I came to the states after that. And so, were you? So, when you were beginning to learn to write, that's when you had gone to Kuwait, and and because I wonder. Um, with writing, do you also, when you're drafting, I know you said for the novels, or at least I believe I read that you mm -hmm. said uh, you you draft in English, but you also write poems as well. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering for, for writing the poems, is that something where you move uh, between the two languages or, or is Arabic maybe even more dominant, uh, perhaps lyrically or something yeah. because of that formative time? Yeah, it's really interesting. So my, my Arabic, when I was young, I used to write poetry in Arabic. Um, but because I came here at a relatively young age, uh, 13, my, um, my development, my, my linguistic development or literary development uh, was arrested at that age, I guess, um, in Arabic, at least. So, um, and I, I had to learn to read and write English when I came here at 13. I mean, I could, I could do so, but on a very elementary level, like I was probably reading on a first or at most second grade level, uh, when I was 13. And so I had to, um, I had to teach myself. It was actually my big secret. I, I, um, I was so ashamed and I didn't want oh. anybody to know. And so I, uh, the way I learned, um, to write uh, and read was to copy the the entire front page of the charlotte observer um the entire front page of the newspaper and i i didn't know what i was writing or, um but i just kept doing it i think i just kind of wanted to feel like i could write and i was so i would just write uh, i would just copy what i was um what i was seeing and then at some point it just started to make sense um, you know, I think, you know, when you're young, our brains are a lot more pliable <laughs> um, and plastic. And um, so that's, that's how I learned to read and write English. <laughs> and you did it, though. That's amazing, yeah. too, how it was something that first, however you figured it out to like grab that newspaper, um, it was you, it was, you know, like it originated from you, like, this is like, this is how I'll do it. This yeah. is a, a way. You know, honestly, I don't know that um, I had that, that, that it was a conscious decision that this is how I'm going to learn. I think it was the shame of not really knowing how to write. And I would just pretend like I was writing. And I just wanted, even to myself, I just wanted to be writing. And so I, I was, just, I would just copy them. And actually, <laughs> even to this day, I have this really kind of um, uh, just 
strange habit of constantly doodling, um, constantly mm -hmm. writing words. Like it will, I'll be in a conversation, like, you know, even now I'm just kind of writing words that we're saying. It's just, <laughs> it's a habit, it, you know, it just, and I believe that it stems from that time actually. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And then it, it also makes some sense too, then that one of the other ways that you are as a writer in the world is you also write op-eds. So mm -hmm. now like your, your mm -hmm. opinions um, and your critical analysis are within the pages of, of contemporary newspapers. I mean, maybe not the Charlotte Observer, but um. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it that way. But yeah. Uh... Um, well, well, let's talk a little bit about your fiction writing, since we've got a book on the table with us today, uh, your latest novel, Against the Loveless World. So, Susan, uh, how many years in the making uh, was this book? Um, because it seems like for, for a while now, for several years, maybe since um, before your first novel, um, you've been making a living as as a writer you know doing some mm -hmm. i think medical uh medical writing, writing too. yeah 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 so um my background is actually in biology and meth and medicine i uh, i was a researcher for many years for a drug company um i went to grad school in uh in neuroscience and um and when i when i left the lab i started doing medical writing that was around the time when I started writing my first novel. And um, in 2013, I finally left, uh, you know, I left that kind of full-time work for good. I was able to do that because I needed to finish my second novel, The Blue Between Sky and Water. And um, uh, yeah, so I've, I've been able to do that. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a lucrative living by any means, and it's often precarious, but I've been able to pull it off. <laughs> that's, I, I think that's, that is amazing. I mean, it, it, it just is. Um, but, but let's talk about, um, cause, cause I teach, I teach writing too. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so so that's how I make ends meet. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's um I mean I, I would probably be far better off financially, I think, if I did have a you know, if I did do more freelance and, and um but there's something just so liberating about owning your own time that sometimes it's worth just, you know, being a bit more frugal and <laughs> Oh completely. Oh completely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's so interesting that you say that too, Susan, um, because in Against the Loveless World, it's there feels like there's such a um, a theme of trying to find um, to be your to be yourself in the world and to mm -hmm. have like and freedom. I feel like yeah. that world word is called upon. Yeah, yeah, and you know being um cons you know being like a a, a rapacious consumer <laughs> we're all consumers to some extent but the kind of consumer that is demanded by capitalism is in many ways a form of bondage and it is um it does feel liberating to uh, to not need so much or not want so much. Um, and, you know, when I figured that out, 
many years ago, it, uh, uh, my life became so much more fulfilling, <laughs> to be honest, without as many things and as many, you know, desire as much desire for things. Um, yes. yeah. Yes. You can't see me, but I'm nodding vigorously. <laughs> um, <Good. laughs> so what is your writing practice like then, Susan? So when I'm writing a book, um, I am writing 24-7. I'm writing when I'm in the shower, when I'm driving a car. I mean, it's always, things are always writing in my head. Um, I am physically writing at my computer, typically in the very early hours of the day. I, um, I, I just really am more productive in, when it's really early, and I, I love that time of the day more than anything, any other time of the day when everybody is um, not yet awake and it's still dark outside. Uh, I actually, I have been lately going jogging at four o'clock in the morning with my dogs and, um, you know, they get to be off leash and, and we all run it. We all just run and together and it's dark and, uh, misty and, you know, mysterious <laughs> and I love it. And I, I also have, I go to bed super early. I just, you know, my friends call me the old lady because, you know, I just, I'm in bed at 830. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, fair's fair. You're, you're out running at 4am <laughs> to sleep sometime. It does sound so um, do you let's take a quick departure into the world of dogs, because this is truly one of my favorite favorite subjects besides writing. Oh, okay. um, and so how you said you have dogs, so you have multiple dogs and, um, and your author photo also features one of your pups. I wonder who got to be in the photo. And yeah. Are the so, okay about that. <laughs> yeah. So there was another picture with Luca and Lily. Lily's the, the smaller dog. Um, but I had to choose one. And so it ended up being Luca. Um, cause he's the baby. And, uh, it was, you know, um, my, my British publisher, uh, really didn't like that at all. And, but I insisted that, you know, cause I really don't like my other author photos. They're so, um, unnatural and, <laughs> you know, they're just, I don't feel like I'm looking at myself when I see them. They're like those, um, uh, I might be dating myself, but those, you know, 1980s glamour shot kind of things. So I just... <laughs> right. It's, and it's I, you, and... but not you. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, so I insisted, I'm like, look, I don't like author photos. I don't like how anybody looks in their author photos. Cause I don't believe that's, that's representative of who people really are. And I said, I want to, I, you know, this is my third book. I'm, I, you know, I want the right to just pick my own darn picture. And I wanted a picture that represented me. And, you know, being with my dogs is, um, that's a true picture. That's a true representation of me. Um, you they're with me all the time. I travel with them. I, you know, uh, they sleep in my bed. We, we go on runs and walks and, um, they, they sit, they sit next to me when I'm at my computer. So, uh, yeah, but my British publisher cut them out. They cut Luca out. 
I didn't even realize it until, you know, until they sent me the jacket and it was too late to do anything. I was like, well, who did this? And they were real apologetic and they said, oh, it was marketing and we had nothing, you know, whatever. So, Oh, but that's, that's also, it's so surprising because I feel like the Brits are also kind of mad about their dogs. So, you know, you'd think that of, of any society, yeah, the, the British would have been, you know. Yeah, I don't understand. Like, what's the problem with dogs? <laughs> well, I've got to tell you that um, that's one of the first things I thought when I was looking, when I got the book in the mail, Susan, um, mm-hmm. was that photo. I was like, oh, I want to talk with her because you had Luca in the picture with you. So it definitely oh. sent out some signals that were received. Definitely. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> See, it, it attracts precisely the right people, <laughs> the people who understand me. <laughs> And it seems like, you know, I bet there's something about, you know, because um, you're, you're, the Luke is there. And it, I, I bet even like your eyes and how you're smiling is you, right? Like it's just, yeah. yeah. And he's, he's smiling too for, yeah. for everyone out there um, listening. Um, both really great smiles there in the, the, the bio picture. But yeah, he smiles. When you say smile, he just, he looks at, he looks up and he smiles. <laughs> Well, it sounds like they're the both Luca and Lily are are like the best sort of companions and kind of co-writers. Like they're co-workers. They'll they'll go they with you are. on these, these runs. Because do you when you're running, is that also part of um in a way what gets the work going? Like where you're connecting to the ideas or is it more yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm a um off and on runner. I, uh, there was a time when I was doing marathons and then I stopped. Um, I had some injuries and I got lazy and then I, I gained a lot of weight and I gained even more during COVID. Um, and so me too. uh, Yeah. And so I decided, and then, you know, after, uh, when I hit menopause, all kinds of things, you know, my body just changed in weird ways. So I have, I've started back. It's been just a couple of weeks. Um, but you know, I would still, go um it's been a couple of weeks that it's daily thing but i would still you know go at least once or twice a week even when i wasn't running that much um just go for a short run and yeah but then the mornings are important the mornings are yeah like that and so when you're and you said when you're writing a novel it's like 24 7 you're kind of living and Mm -hmm. breathing like the ideas like the characters are probably with you and you're thinking through things or maybe researching Mm -hmm. and interviewing Mm -hmm. Uh, um so are are you um are you so are you working on something now because or is it that you always have multiple writing projects going or yeah. What, yeah. What's it like? So actually right now what's um, taking up all of my time is this literature festival. It's called Palestine Rights Literature Festival. It's going to take place in early December from uh, December 2nd till the 6th. And um, I'm co-chair of that. So uh, I've been just kind of been working nonstop on that. And for anybody listening, you know, registration is free. So tickets are free. There's support tickets too, but um uh, anybody can join. It's going to be uh, it's just incredible. Um, it's a virtual. It's a virtual event, um, but it's it's we're doing it on this platform that creates where we've been allowed to create or able to create uh, these three D rooms. These this 
uh, 3D lobby that we get to decorate with different things, different clickable things, clickable ro clickable rooms. There's this out, you know, it's just, it's really cool. So, um, I mean, the technology is really cool and the content is even cooler. Um, our, our keynotes are going to be Hanan Ashrawi, Angela Davis, and Jeremy Corbin. Um, all three of them, people may not realize, are avid readers. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and the rest, the, the whole festival is going to be talking to writers, uh, Palestinian writers, uh, Black and Indigenous writers in the United States. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of the a lot of issues that surround um, being writers of color, being Palestinian, um, different genres of writing, um, writing from the the perspective of um, of people who are being erased um, or people who are violated in other ways. Susan, is there um, so is there a website folks could visit? Yeah, it's um, if you go to PalestineRights.org, rights um, as in you know W R I T E S, not R I H T S. Oh, right, right. Yeah, G H T S. Yeah. Um, oh, great. Well, because um, the title uh, "Against the Loveless World." Um, once once you're um, well into the novel, you realize two of the main characters they're they're talking and. Um, Bilal is reading uh, James Baldwin. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about how this became um, what the book was called? Um, you, you mean what the what the what my book was called or oh, what oh yeah yeah because uh, well because when when we get to that scene in in mm -hmm. against the loveless world um Correct me if I'm saying the names wrong, Susan, because mm -hmm. I haven't um, heard them out loud, only in my head. Um, so, Nar? Nar, yeah. Nar? Uh -huh. um, and who is the, the main protagonist in Against the Loveless World? And um, the the person who is like a becomes her husband um, and and love of her life, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Bilal. And uh -huh. they are reading uh, James Baldwin together. Yes. Um, when she um, when she comes and to 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 stay mm -hmm. and then live with him in in Palestine. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think inevitably, I guess writers will put, you know, we'll put a little bit of ourselves <laughs> in the stories <laughs> we write, or at least I do. I shouldn't speak for other writers. Um and I'm a big fan of James Baldwin, and uh, uh, I think his 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 works and his life are uh, uh, are transforming when you read them. And that has certainly that was certainly the effect on my life when I uh, and I still read uh, Baldwin from time to time. I'll pick up some of his essays, and um, you know because I think the way we read things changes as we age completely um and hopefully mature <laughs> when, um, when did you first find james baldwin um i would maybe in my probably late 20s i would say um but more so in my 30s i'm 50 now <laughs> and and so he's like you know how um writers have um like writers who are like in your like in your family so he would be part of your your writing family 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I read, I read James Baldwin around the time that I read, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yes. Uh, so they, you know, books like that. Sorry, that's Luca. Hey, Luca. <laughs> Getting in on the action. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know what he sees outside. He's 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 actually on the couch, I think, and he's not supposed to be. So, <laughs> do you hear Lily trying to join in? <laughs> yes, she's she's reluctant. She's sitting on my lap and she can't decide. They're all different. I all my dogs are rescues. Um, I you know I don't. I I feel like there's a lot of dogs out there that need homes instead of you know going to breeders and whatnot and. I just, I think, you know, I just kind of look for, look for a personality that jibes with mine and, and, uh, yeah, it and seems, fall in love. <laughs> it seems like it might be hard though to go and not just return with everyone. I know it's true. I actually tried to foster for a while. Ooh, um, okay. And, and I was, I was really in danger of just having, you know, a dog farm or something. <laughs> <laughs> you might need a bigger boat or whatever <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so I, th I think they've calmed down okay so um this is from the chapter called dance ruby river i don't remember the first time i danced women of my generation were born dancing it was just something we did when we gathered we'd form a circle clapping and singing as each of us entered the middle to roll our hips but I knew early on, by the way people watched me, that the way I danced was enchanting. When the music plays, my body moves as it wishes. I never tried to control anything. It was complete surrender to music and all the unseen, unknowable forces it inspired. I let rhythm rub against my body and wrap around my breath. Maybe that's what people saw because dancing is the nearest I've ever come to true faith. Eastern dance, what people who don't know better call belly dancing, might look like controlled, orchestrated movement, but it's exactly the opposite. Our dance is about chaos and anarchy. It is the antithesis of control. It's about relinquishing power over one's body, bestowing autonomy on every bone, ligament, nerve, and muscle fiber on every skin and fat cell, every organ. I suppose this is true of every form of native dance, but all I know are the rhythms of the Levant, Babylon, El Khalij, and North Africa. This is the music that rooted in my body as it matured from infancy, then settled in my bones. The lyrics of Um Kalthum, the plaint of a nai, the melody of a qanun, or the rasp of a oud are the sounds of my life. They echo inside me, through time, and with the stories those ancient instruments made. As much as I love the sounds of India, the complex resonance of the sitar, or the high-pitched strings of a tumbi, or the deep percussion and multi-layered rhythms of African drums, and the piercing precision of a xylophone, though they move my body, they do not reach the depths from which music transports me because they are the sounds of other peoples and stories I only heard as an adult. Music is like spoken language, inextricable from its culture. 
If you don't learn a language early in life, its words will forever come out wrinkled and accented by another world, no matter how well you memorize or love the vocabulary, grammar, and cadences of a new language. This is why foreign belly dancers have always bothered me. The use of our music as a prop to wiggle and shimmy and jump around offends me. Eastern music is the soundtrack of me, and dancing is the only nation I ever claimed, the only religion I comprehend. When I see women belly dance to music they do not understand, in clothes of a people they do not know, or worse, disdain, I feel they are colonizing me and all the Arab women who are the keepers of our traditions and heritage. Thank you, Susan. Yeah, so Nahed, from a very, uh, from an early age, um, had this kind of uh, magic or defiance or whatever you want to call it. She had an edge to her very young and she, um, dancing was a refuge for her. It was the one place where she could lose herself, where she could be seen um, because she... Uh, you know, she was a refugee in a country that um, looked down on Palestinians. Uh, she she was uh, a terrible student. She was a troublemaker in school. She backtalked her elders. <laughs> um, she was, uh, you know, she was she was, I guess, what some people would call a rotten apple. <laughs> um, but she could dance and. Uh, uh, and it will, and that was a place I mean, she could get lost in music and her body could just kind of melt into music. Um, and that was a home for her. That was a place where she could be seen and also where she could find a kind of, uh, internal refuge. And that kind of, uh, there's, there's some, you know, reverberations of that, uh, for her later in life when she falls in love uh, and she finds a different kind of home uh, and, and she meshes those two together in some ways. And also later uh, when she is a prisoner and she is alone in a solitary confinement cell. Yes, it seems like the, the dancing is a way to fully express who she is but also, mm. and the same time, losing the self, at least how that's how it feels like the beginning of this chapter is like with the, I mean, not that we aren't ourselves and our, you know, mm -hmm. the parts that make us up, but like the giving over to what mm -hmm. the, the movement of the body. Um, What's well, also about, you know, she's specifically also talking about um, colonization of of culture, you know, a lot of people kind of, um, especially people in the arts, dismiss this idea of cultural theft and cultural appropriation. Mm. But when you are part of a society that is so denigrated in so many ways that is dismissed and disdained, and then you see those same people who, who erase, dismiss, and disdain you, you see them copying 
your dance or or claiming your music or claiming your food um it's it's uh it's wounding and it's hurtful and it's painful and it's infuriating and um and this is what Nahid is trying to express like some of some things uh it's it's great for the world to admire things but but to but to colonize other people's heritage um especially people who are marginalized uh is is uh is a form of imperialism yes and perhaps being unaware of some of the i don't i was gonna say the the consequences of doing that like thinking that there's like um because we can't examine people's intentions always and we also don't know right mm-hmm. what what uh what has formed people like their life experiences so but it is um and i don't know if this can even be answered susan but like is there a way that like you could there's like a respectful way of so that something can be learned about a culture i mean certainly not like from like in the the novel here in the mm-hmm. way that the the perspective that nara has with this at the moment it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's definitely feels like um that it, it can it cannot be that way like the people that she's seen for example dancing are not doing it with the like any kind of respect it seems like i i don't know it kind of reminds me of like something like maybe like halloween costume or something like something not thought of thought about right i think so when you um when you when you sort of put on someone else's skin and claim their you know uh claim their traditions in some ways um without without really uh, ever um, advocating for those people or trying to learn who they are or being an ally or um, it, it, it is, it's, it's sort of smacks of this sort of sense of privilege, this yes. idea that some people are entitled to anything within their reach. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, I don't believe I don't believe that's ethical, and especially there's this sort of sense in the art world that um, art and literature is a free for all. It is something um, you know. It's all this is these these are claims that are all made under the you know the guise of empathy and creativity. Um, but uh, you know I don't I don't subscribe to that. And, and the reason is that um, I don't think art is a free-for-all. I think that um, in the same way that, you know, one would cringe at uh, a white person, for example, writing in the first-person voice of an African-American uh, person um, and trying to emulate the dialect and, um, uh, you know, most of All us would agree would agree yeah. right 
I, most people would agree that's you know that's racist and it's 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 deeply pro problematic um <clears throat> but that you know but that's because we now have that kind of we have come to uh to understand that sensibility um but those sentiments are not applied across the board to to other instances and um you know they're I think like for me, for example, as a reader, um, if I, if I want to read about, um, a, a story, a Nigerian story, I'm going to read a Nigerian writer. I'm not going to read an American writer, um, or a Norwegian writer who, who is writing in the first person about Nigeria. Um, because I don't think that, I don't think that, that, that people who, and again, this is kind of what Nahad is saying that um, music and culture, music and, and art are, are inextricable from the society that created that, um, that art or that culture. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. it does. And so for somebody who's outside of that culture to come in and sort of, uh, and try and capture the nuances of, of a society, uh, uh, where they they neither speak the language nor understand the nuances of communication, um, or or the cultural uh, um, cultural nuances or or particulars of uh, 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 of of specific regions within that culture. You know, I think only indigenous people or people who are native to that society. Uh, are the ones who are going to be able to produce something that is authentically representative of that, uh, and um, and I I don't believe that uh, you know people outside of that culture can can truly do that. That said, I don't. It's this. I'm not trying to say that nobody can ever write about people outside their culture. There's ways to do it without without appropriating or, or trying to speak in, in their voice. And, and one example that I give is, um, it was actually a young adult novel. Um, it was for young adult and big adult. <laughs> um, they so often are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it was called, uh, I think it's called the wall. Um, it was written by William Sutcliffe. He's a, he's a British writer and, um, it's uh, it's set in Palestine, although he never names it. I think, if I if I recall correctly, but I remember that it was so it was so well done. It was, and I I remember thinking, this is how you write about another people, um, because he wrote it from the perspective of an of an outsider, and he maintained right. that that gaze and that view, and he never tried to explain any of the things that that his protagonist was seeing, but he let the reader see it. He let the reader see things through his uh, through his protagonist's eyes, and uh, without trying to interpret it, without trying to speak for for the other, for the members of that other culture, um, but rather just telling, telling the story from where he stands, from where his protagonist stood. Um, and it was a really, it was a lovely story. It was, it was, uh, yeah. So that's, you know, it can be done, but there's just, you know, uh, I've rarely read, you know, um, great representations of that. So, but then again, I don't, 
tend to read, um, uh, you know, novels that are about people that are written by people who aren't members of that society. Is, is it, so is part of, for, for, um, for the festival, for Palestine Rights, Susan, is mm-hmm. it, is this also part of the mission to have more, more Palestinian writers, to have more, um, to kind of have a space, uh, because, because people are, there's a, like, there's a diaspora, like, people are mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, right. Um, it absolutely is. And I think you, you, you said it perfectly is to make a space. Um, there, there isn't a whole lot of space for us in mainstream. Um, there is increasingly now more, more than there was before, but it's still hard to, um, to get a book published, um, by a Palestinian that, that is not kind to Israel, um, or, you know, that, that, that shows a, 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 a truer picture of, of Israel, um, from the view of Israel's victims. So, um, so, and, and, and it's still, uh, uh, it's still hard to get published as a Palestinian, but, um, and even, even for those of us who do get published, the opportunities for us, um, in terms of, you know, being submitted for prizes or, or, you know, getting, um, just having that, that literary space, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say is, is limited. And so the idea really is for us to celebrate, um, to celebrate our, our creative productions in a festival where, you know, where we get to meet each other, um, with our friends and our allies from other communities who, who have, who face a lot of the same challenges when it comes to cultural productions. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. And Susan, when you're, when we're thinking about cultural productions and maybe fiction in particular, what is it about using the genre of the novel um, to, to tell to communicate the stories because because there's I mean if you read in the um, at the end of Against the Loveless World there is you know um, a section of acknowledgments but also where it almost is, becomes a personal essay too I would mm-hmm. say Susan where it's you say in there that you've you've interviewed family family members um, as part of the research. Um, mm-hmm. Because of course you have, you have your own story of, of this place and, and multiple places, um, as, as you've told us with your bio, your own biography and your family being refugees at the very beginning of your life. And so the novel, the, the power of fiction to tell your own story, but mm-hmm. the stories of others who you are close to or you have access to. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think um, the novel is is really a, a beautiful landscape where where we get to 
meet each other um, from different parts of the world. We get to meet each other uh, on our own terms and, 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 and see each other's humanity. Um, I think that's, that's one of the great powers of the novel. It's one of the great powers of poetry and literature in general and art in general film and uh and dance and and music i mean these are things that that connect people that help us understand each other um as human beings uh and so so you know writing being able to uh uh to write a novel to to just to sort of to just put a story the the simple act of storytelling is um is part of is part of every society's sort of public facing face if you will for lack of a better expression um and it's part of memory it's part of exactly what is the, like what is the historical record what it, is well Exactly. It's, it's, it's part of our rootedness in a place and in time. And I mean, if you think of when we think of other cultures, I mean, the things that first come to mind about, you know, different cultures is the art that they produce is what, you know, it's, it's the music they produce. It's the food. uh, It's the clothing they wear. Um, These are the, the, this is, this is kind of what um, they're identifiers of different societies. And, and when we have, when we have these stories to bequeath to our, our children, um, and, and their children and so forth, uh, you're absolutely right. It becomes this kind of audit of, um, an affirmation of our existence, of our time on this planet, of our existence, especially when you belong to a society who's uh, uh, that's actively being erased. Our very uh, existence in the world is is often denied. I mean, one of the things, one of the famous things that um, Golda Meir, um, an Israeli, uh, Israel, early Israeli prime minister, said was that you know Palestinians don't exist, and we still hear echoes of that in. Um, in public speech uh, by politicians and and other uh, uh, cultural figures, and you know, of course, that's deeply uh, uh, painful to you know to see and hear yes. expressions that negate your you know your humanity, um, and the novel becomes an antidote to that. Uh, both for our contemporaries, for our ancestors, and for our children. So you are writing this too for the future, Susan? Of course, yeah. I mean, actually, some of the most moving letters uh, I've I've received as a writer have been from young Palestinians. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Some. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Actually, I got a letter just a few days ago, too, that nearly brought me to tears. Um, But one that I remember um, from many years ago, uh, Mornings in Janine, was from this young woman who who lived in the diaspora. Um, And then there was another young woman who lived in uh, Palestine in 19, uh, we call it the 1948 territories. It's that's the those are the territories that Israel occupied in, in 1948. Um, the one that was in the diaspora said, you know, my, me and my whole family read it and, um, 
we felt for the first time uh, that we finally understood our father. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, her father had been a refugee from from the, the 48 exodus. exodus. Yes. And, um and it, it was it was it was a, it was a tremendously moving letter. I mean, I still kind of get choked up thinking about it. And then the other letter um, in from the young woman in 1948, likewise, said that um, she read it, and then her entire family read it, and it kind of it renewed. Um, you know, they even even those Palestinians didn't. You know, who were in 48 don't really have a sense of. Uh, what happened to them, what ha what brought them to that, to that point, because, you know, Israel ha controls the, the education of Palestinians and, and, and the 48 territories. And, um, and there was, there was likewise, uh, uh, you know, a kind of renewed family bond with, with her parents and grandparents. And then recently, um, there was a letter from a young woman in uh, in the diaspora who who lives in an Arabic uh, in an Arab country, but not but outside of Palestine. And she was saying, you know, I grew up and um, really Palestine was kind of irrelevant to me, and and I, I really didn't care about you know hearing my parents or grandparents stories and it annoyed me uh, much in the same way as Nahed actually yes. in, in this novel. Um, and she said, uh, she, the, the letter was just full of, you know, this profuse gratitude that, uh, you know, I, I, she feels connected to her um, parents and grandparents and, and her, you know, her, uh, her, her identity in a way that she had never felt before reading that novel. And, um, so yeah, again, so this is, this is the power of literature. It's just, it's the power of art and, uh, to, to not only, um, uh, you know, help the world connect with us and help us connect with the world, but to connect with each other and, um, and to bridge the, you know, divides between generations. Yes. The power of story to even introduce yeah. us to ourselves. Exactly. Well, Susan, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. It was it was a joy and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. T today on Living Writers, Susan Abulhoa, her novel Against the Loveless World. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to your daily sports report for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. My name is Ryan Dolson. I'm joined here tonight by Connor. Uh, by Connor, I cannot see your last name. It's blocking it off. Yeah. That's rough. Connor, you're good. How's it Connor, going, you're folks? Good. And Owen Klein. How are you doing tonight, Owen? How's it going, guys? Thanks for having us, Ryan. But like I said, this is our daily sports report for November 10th. We are, I will start off with the preface by saying that um, we, the show is pre-recorded. So unfortunately we are unable to discuss any news that breaks between when we record the show now, which is about 9.15 PM on Tuesday and when it will air on Wednesday. Hopefully the college football playoff rankings will come out so we can give brief thoughts on them. But I mean, Yep. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. And again, this is WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. But there's so much to talk about. Uh, college college basketball season starting tonight. I don't know if you guys want to get some thoughts on that to start th- to kick things off. Uh, Ohio State managed, wins a close one at home against Akron, only winning by one on a last-second buzzer beater. Uh, you guys have any thoughts on that one not a good look for osu i mean they're a ranked team especially coming off of that march madness performance we all know what happened uh that's not how you want to start the season if you're a buckeye fan no no not at all and you know maybe akron will go on a run this year maybe they're good you know obviously first game of the season we can't weigh it too much but i mean you know big 10 school ohio state was decent last year other than the playoff like that's a tough look, but yeah. you know, saw, too early to judge. It is indeed 